the Fracture Kingdom, Uniting Modern Christianity Through the Historical Jesus. That's coming up next right here on The Parker J. Cole Show. And welcome to the Parker J. Cole Show. I'm your host, the Queen Parker J. Thank you so much for joining me. Today, we're going to be talking to my returning guest co-host and contributor today, Professor Jean-Pierre Isbot. You may remember him from earlier this year when we talked about maps, not just any maps, mapping America. We went through a wonderful presentation of looking and listing maps that showed what America looked like to the European explorers before they actually got here. Some of the maps were very speculative in nature. Some of the maps were well detailed, some weren't. But through watching and listening and studying these maps, well, you don't listen to maps, but studying these maps, we learn how the American dream and what it meant to European explorers grew all the way up until the American Revolutionary War. So if you want to get a handle on that episode, simply go to our YouTube channel at PJC Media and you can watch the whole presentation. Professor Isbutz and I had a wonderful time. And now he's back with another book called The Fractured Kingdom. Why is there so much division among Christians? Well, we're going to be talking about that in just a few moments because Professor Isbutz has the solution. As always, I want to thank you for your support. We have been showcasing Christian authors worldwide for the past nine years. And as God gives us grace, we'll continue to do so. To find out how you can help out, simply go to patreon.com slash write stuff and see what you can do. And as always, we covet your prayers. To stay up to date with PJC Media, simply go to pjcmedia.net, click on that pink follow button, and you'll never, ever have to miss a show. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel and click that notification bell where you'll be notified whenever we have a new upload. And so, without further ado, I'm going to bring on my guest today. Professor, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Professor. Thank you so much. You know, I really enjoyed the Fracture Kingdom. I really enjoyed how you brought the historical Jesus to the forefront in so many different ways. I know our listeners are going to be just blessed by this book. So before I do that, I want to know how have things been since the last time we talked? All the things have been busy. <laughs> are you working on anything new? I'm working on a sequel to the book Mapping America, which is Mapping the Holy Land. That's what I'm working on right now. And it's a book like Mapping America that tries to tell the story, in this case, of the Holy Land, as seen through the prism of the maps of the era. And uh, there are beautiful maps of the Holy Land from about 15, 1600 onwards. But there is this huge gap of 1500 years between, of course, the ministry of Jesus Christ and the rediscovery of the Holy Land in the wake of the Christopher Columbus's voyage to America and other explorers and cartographers. And it's bridging that gap of 1,500 years that has really been a challenge because there is hardly any literature about it, virtually nothing. So I've been ensconced in various libraries, and I'm going to London to work in the British Library there to look at uh, maps of, that were made of the Holy Land, not only during the Crusader era, when, of course, the Crusaders were in charge of the Holy Land for a short period of time, but also Muslim maps. There are wonderful Muslim maps made by famous Muslim cartographers in the 8th, 9th, and 10th century, and they are perfect to bridge the gap between, let's say, late antiquity and uh, the early Renaissance. So uh, it's been quite a challenge. I'm going to take the rest of the year to work on the book, but hopefully it will be ready for publication in the middle of next year. I am excited for you because I want my copy as soon as you finish getting your ARCs out there. I want a copy so bad. And then we'll definitely have to showcase it on the show like we did Mapping America I find that topic extremely fascinating. And after I read and listened to the presentation of Mapping America, I had just 
a new appreciation for maps. I didn't know how much information you could discover just by studying maps of a particular region. And now I have to apologize to all my speculative fiction authors who always put maps in their stories <laughs> because I can't tell, you know, north, south, east, and west what so means absolutely nothing to me. They're just abstract drawings. But no, after reading Mapping America and watching that presentation, my gosh, just so much information you can tell from that. And I like the fact that you're doing the Holy Land and using different perspectives of cultures to help bridge that gap so we can get understanding of what the Holy Land looked like. So I'm excited for you, Professor. Well, thanks so much. It's a bit of a challenge. Again, uh, it's a subject that has not been explored at all in the popular literature. I have to go for scholarly books that were written 20, 30, 40 years ago. And of course, go look at the actual maps themselves, who are very brittle. These are manuscripts, documents, these early maps that are preserved in specially temperature-controlled rooms, you know, so you have to have special permission to handle them. But it's just a lost part of our human civilization, how we imagined a holy land through all these centuries, as long as Christianity and Judaism and Islam has endured. Uh, so I think it will be a uh, nice work to bring us back to the beauty of the Holy Land and how it's been imagined through all those years. My question to you to lead us into the topic about the Fracture Kingdom, as you have written many books over your career, do you think in this time of your career, you really want to write and present works to help unify people? Is that something you think is a calling that's currently in your life right now? Oh, absolutely. I think I started writing about archaeology, biblical archaeology, 30 years ago. My first book about Jesus, which was called Young Jesus, was written and published by, gosh, it was Barnes & Noble, I think, in those days, 30 years ago. And I think there is so much about Judeo-Christian history that we have forgotten or no longer are interested in. And so starting with my books with National Geographic, The Biblical World, Archaeology of the Bible, Who's Who in the Bible, and Footsteps of Jesus, what I try to do is bring people back to the essential values and the essential truths about our Judeo-Christian legacy. You know, for at Easter, I find myself in the local synagogue here in Santa Monica talking to the Jewish congregation of Santa Monica about our shared legacy, and uh, it was a wonderful turnout. And uh, it really strikes me that as Jews and Christians in America, but also in other parts of the world, we share a common legacy. And that's why the re-emergence of anti-Semitism is so incredibly distressing, because we have far more in common as Jews, Christians, and Muslims than we typically realize. I wrote a book called From Moses to Muhammad many years ago. It's been translated in several languages that talks about the things that where we agree on, which is, you know, the media doesn't like to do that. You know, when you're, we see the news at night or CNN or, play, or Fox News, they, they want to highlight conflict because that sells, you know, that sells eyeballs. That sells advertising. They want to show conflict and where we are fighting with each other. What very few people are interested in in the media is what unites people, what brings people together, what brings us together to sit around the campfire at night and tell stories that we all believe in and that exemplify our values. And so that's what I, in my own very modest way, have been trying to do with my books to show how much we have in common as human beings, how much we all have our faith in one God compared to all the polytheistic religions that surrounded us in ancient times, you know, Egyptian religion, Roman religion, Greek religion, religion they had revered, you know, all these different gods and goddesses who really couldn't care less about humankind. And yet, the Judeo-Christian tradition triumphed in the end, even though it started in a very small corner of the world, in Judea and Galilee, and uh, you know that's where these, and even Islam in Arabia, in a very forgotten corner of the world. And yet it is these 
monotheistic religions that have ultimately triumphed, which is an incredible story when you think, look at the power of the Roman Empire and the armies and all that. And yet there's this faith in the monotheistic God that ultimately triumphed in the end, which is a miracle in itself. So that's what has inspired me over the years and why I'm so blessed to be able to write these books and talk to people like you. <laughs> I find myself fascinated by other faiths, regardless of my own faith. I still find myself fascinated learning about different cultures and different belief systems. And I can tell just from your books and the things that draw you, you're drawn to the challenge of bringing history to the modern eye. And one day, someone in the future will look at our history and try to bring it to their modern eye. They'll be wondering, what was wrong with people in the 21st century? They were divided all over the place. And so with the Fractured Kingdom, what you're doing is showing if you want to unite the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and you do tell us the difference between the two, if you want to unite it, you have to do it through the historical Christ. Yes, Jesus is God, but he was also a man. And this is kind of a mystery to us because we're used to see him in a reverent eye. However, that's thousands of years after the fact. But what was his life like during this time period? What did he do with his time? How come the Gospels don't really tell us anything about his youth? What was the whole thing about King Herod? What do you mean that people were upset about these publicans? Why did these people get mad about it? What was the socioeconomic climate like? All these questions are answered and more questions are brought to mind too as you read The Fracture Kingdom Uniting Modern Christianity Through the Historical Jesus by Professor John Pierre Isbutt, available wherever books are sold. So make sure you go ahead Pick up your copy today, especially those of you who are like me. You love history. He writes this book in such a way that if you are a scholar, you may be insulted that he made it so simple. <laughs> but at the same time, you may appreciate that simplicity because you really do want people to understand why this is important. And so for you, Professor, what do you hope our listeners will learn about the fractured kingdom? What I hope they will learn is that. While Jesus is the Son of God and we worship him as such, he was also a man. And uh, while he was on earth, he launched a ministry that I believe was a response in many ways to the incredible socioeconomic crisis that he confronted in Galilee. And that's why the first part of the book is basically setting the stage, if you will, for the story, because there are many things that people are not necessarily aware of. And when I, in the book, I write that if Jesus saw our world today, as I'm sure he does, he would not be surprised because so many things that are vexing our society today, he was familiar with, he saw in his own time, the fact that so many of us are hungry. Four out of 10 children in the United States go to bed, go to bed hungry in the richest country on earth. 80% of our wealth is controlled by the upper 10% of society. This incredible gap between haves and have-nots, this concentration of wealth in the hands of the few at the detriment of society as a whole is something that he witnessed himself for different reasons. And that's the first part of the book talks about the fact that King Herod, who wasn't a Jew, by the way, he had Arab descent, he wasn't interested in Jewish customs or the Jewish Torah. He was interested in building up his kingdom as a very wealthy kingdom and please his master, who was Emperor Augustus. And so he realized that the only place where there was capital or proceeds to be developed was Galilee because of its fertility. That was the good news. Galilee was the most, even to this day, the most fertile region in the Middle East because of its deep valleys, which were moist, held moist, and had underwater aquifers that provided water all year round so you can cultivate your crops all year round. The problem was that Galilee was a patchwork of very small plots that had been held by families for generations. And in ancient Israel, 
if you had multiple children, the largest plot would go to your oldest son. But when your daughter was married to someone in your circle, she needed a dowry. And that was very often a plot of land as well. And so over the years, Galilee had become a patchwork of tiny, tiny lots where people practice what we call subsistence agriculture, which is just enough agriculture to sustain your own family with a large spectrum of crops. So some cereals, some grapes, some vegetables, some legumes, and so forth and so on, which is perfect if you want to sustain your family. But if you look back, the economy of Galilee, it was wholly inefficient because of this very small, narrow spectrum agriculture. So King Herod said, I want to make this a flourishing kingdom and I want to build cities and I want to build palaces for myself. Where am I going to get that? From Galilee. What's my obstacle? The obstacle is that all of these lands are very inefficiently cultivated because they are all basically there to support one little family at a time. So what did he do is he created a huge tax yoke, which, and I'm drawing from several other scholars here, amounted to as much as 40% of the harvest. Now imagine you're a struggling farmer in Galilee at the time of Jesus, and you're trying to sustain your family of three, four, five children. And on top of everything else, we had to pay a tithe to the temple and to support the Levites and the priests of the temple. On top of that came now up to 37% of as much as 40% of the harvest that you had to give away to, to King Herod. Well, of course, that was totally unsustainable. You couldn't, because there, was, there were droughts, there were pests, there were good years and there were bad years of the harvest. So there was no way a, har a farmer could sustain that. And as a result, what happens the farmer starts to borrow. He starts to borrow. Where did he go for his loan? Well, he goes to the publicans, the tax collectors. These are the only people with capital. And that's why the Gospels have such great enmity towards taxpayers and where, uh, tax collectors and why tax collectors are time again denounced as the evil people of Galilee because they ultimately confiscated the, the lands that had been used as collateral for the loans. And when, of course, the farmer couldn't pay the loan to pay the taxes, his land was foreclosed upon and sold to the highest bidder, which are these very rich landowners. And this is all in the Gospels. I'm not making this up. The, all the Gospels talk about these landowners, the agroi, as known as Greek, with these estates. And, of course, the landowner himself, doesn't cultivate the land. No, what he does is he gets an oikonomoi, he gets stewards, another word in the Gospels, that manage these estates that have been confiscated from these poor farmers. And so all of these plots were combined into large estates that could be cultivated for one crop at a time only, let's say cereals, wheat, and that could be sold to the Roman Empire at large, which is why Herod needed a port and why he built a large port in Caesarea. So the whole thing makes sense, but it is in this context, which is Galilee, which has been fertile and rich for centuries, now suddenly populated by thousands and thousands of families that have been dispossessed from their land, who are hungry, who have no clothing, no shelter. This is the audience for Jesus's ministry. And when you read the Sermon on the Mount, that's exactly what it's about. He says, you know, hungry, you're happy are the hungry because you will be filled. Hungry who are sad because your tears will be dried. Hungry, happy are those who are poor because you will find your riches in heaven. And so he makes this ministry is focused on the terrible socioeconomic crisis that was brought about by Herod the Great's rapacious tax regime. And that's why he formulated this unique vision by which he tried to remedy the situation, which is the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God philosophy is front and center in the Gospels. It's front and center in uh, Jesus' ministry. And the reason why I wrote the book, quite frankly, 
is because the church that I go to, several different churches here in Santa Monica, I'm, I go to the Catholic Church of St. Monica's, I go to our Episcopalian Church on 4th Street. There is a Methodist church just off uh, Washington Street where I go to. I, I try to go to several churches. But I so rarely hear people talk about the kingdom of God. We talk a lot about other things, you know, our culture wars and so forth. And I got really mad because I said, when are we ever going to talk about what Jesus talked about? If we are to call ourselves Christians, shouldn't we stop with these silly culture wars that divide us and try to find common ground by returning to the things, the ideas that Jesus talked about. Isn't that the essence of what a Christian should be about, to walk in the footsteps of Jesus? And so that's why I wrote the book and say, guys, let's stop now worrying about what's happening in our bedrooms for a moment and talk about the things that Jesus talked about, which is social justice, which is compassion for one another, regardless of what you believe in or what political affiliation you have, let's forget about that for a moment. Let's talk about loving each other. Agape, the Greek word that the Gospels use, love each other. And through that, have faith in our God. So that's what the book is basically about. It's a long answer to your question. It's a wonderful answer because I love that you went into such rich detail to let people know what the climate is like. Which brings me to another aspect of your book I would love for you to go into, which is about Jesus's lost youth. And I think this is particularly relevant to the conversation because we have to think about the divisive climate we are in today is what our children are going to grow up in. So there's going to be certain skill sets or certain attitudes and behaviors they're going to adopt that is going to affect how they work with other people in the world as they get older. And so with this topic of Jesus's lost youth, I hope you can make a parallel between what Jesus grew up in as a child of Mary and Joseph and how we can use that to help our own children who are growing up in a divisive climate that we are currently experiencing. Yeah, absolutely. And, You know, it's interesting because we have friends of ours who live nearby, and they had two girls who went to college, and they did very well in college, and now they're all back home again. (laughs) And we see that a lot, where children who go to college and get an education find it very difficult to find their way in today's 21st century society and economy and It doesn't always match their expectations. And to some extent, this was true for Jesus as well. Now, the Gospels really don't talk much about Jesus' youth and adolescence. We have the story of the nativities, of course, in Luke and Matthew. We have the story of when Jesus was 12 years old. He went with his parents to the temple, and there they lost him, and they ultimately found him in the forecourt of the temple where he he was. the 12-year-old was lecturing the scholars of the temple about the Torah, the Jewish Hebrew Bible, which, of course, the, the symbolism, the meaning of the story is that at that early age, Jesus was already so learned about the, the Hebrew Bible that he could lecture the teachers rather than the other way around. Now, that is a subject that I have explored previously in my book, Young Jesus, and I do it in this book as well. And it's basically two questions. Why don't we hear about Jesus' years of adolescence? Modern psychology tells us that a young person develops, most importantly, during the age from 12 to 18 to 21. Why don't we hear anything about that in the Gospels? And second of all, how did Jesus become a rabbi? He is called a rabbi in, in the Gospels. That's the word that the evangelists used. So clearly he was recognized as a teacher, as a rabbi. How did he get to that point? And my theory is that after when Jesus was about 10 or 11 years old, the ruler of Galilee, the son of Herod called Antipas, decided to build a city 
in Sepphoris or Zippori, as it's called in Hebrew today. And it always strikes me that when you know so many of our churches have trips to the Holy Land, which is wonderful. They go to Galilee, they go to Judea, they go to Jerusalem, but they never stop at Zippori, at Sepphoris, which is a crucial part of the story of Jesus because Joseph was a carpenter, tecton, as Mark calls him. Now, carpenter is sort of a wrong word. I would call him an artisan, a skilled worker, which is really what tecton means because there was not a lot of wood in Galilee to work on. And so clearly when Antipas starts to build this city in Sepphoris, which you can visit today, he needs skilled workers. And it is obvious to me that Nazareth, a small village, which was just three miles, three miles from Sepphoris, would have been workers there, would have been conscripted in the construction of that city. That's what you did when you wanted to build a city. You sent out your patrols and you gathered up everyone in the neighborhood and say, you're not working on the city. Any questions? And of course, Joseph, as a skilled worker, would have been particularly in demand. In antiquity, sons followed in the footsteps of their father. So to me, it is quite obvious that after Jesus's bar mitzvah, 13th year old, he would have been, like his father, conscripted in building this city called Sepphoris, which lasted until about 26 AD. At that point, Antipas decided that he wanted to build another city, which many of your listeners maybe have visited. It's called Tiberias on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, which is a very modern city today. But it was actually built by Antipas, the ruler at the time of Jesus, uh, starting in 26 AD. The reason why none of the Jews, including Joseph and his son Jesus, were moved there was because he deliberately decided to build Tiberias on the grounds of an ancient Jewish cemetery, which meant that for Jewish people, it was unclean, and therefore no Jew could live there, could let alone work there. And uh, for that city, he imported workers from the Decapolis, which is the Gentile part to the east of Galilee. That explains to me why you don't hear about Jesus during these years, because he was working with his father, Joseph, on the construction of this great city. And I have some pictures of the city in the book. And uh, if uh, your listeners are planning to go to Israel, I, I urge you to go. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. It's been excavated by several universities. Excavations are still going on to this day. And that's where we really walk into the footsteps of Jesus as a young man. So he was not able to right away pursue his dream of becoming a rabbi, even though, in my interpretation, that is where he was taught because Pharisees were very prominent in Sepphoris. They were the ones who were engaged in the administration of the, the government of Galilee, if you will, under uh, Antipas. And so the Pharisees were very committed to educating the young. Uh, that tradition would continue into rabbinic Judaism after the second century AD. And so it, to me, in my interpretation, the Pharisees recognized in Jesus, who was working there, as a very intelligent, very blessed young man. They took him under his wing when, in my theory, Joseph died, probably as a result of a construction accident. They took Jesus under their wing, and it is the Pharisees in Sepphoris who educated him to be a rabbi. There is no other way to explain why in 28 AD, when Jesus goes to the camp of John the Baptist, he is already, according to the Gospel of John, recognized as a rabbi. How did he do that? There were no schools, academies in Galilee, the only two schools that uh, that educated rabbis were in Jerusalem and Judea. He obviously was not able to go there as a, as a poor young man. So I believe that he was educated to be a rabbi, prepared for his ministry in Sepphoris by Pharisees there. It's a long, a long answer to your question. <laughs>
Again, I don't mind detailed answer to my question because I know our listeners are going to be intrigued by the things that you say here. And there is one part that you said we were talking about the socioeconomic climate of Jesus's time period when he was on earth. You talk about what was happening and then you say in a small hamlet in Galilee, a toddler was just taking his first steps. And I think that picture is very important to the discussion because we have to remember that even though Jesus is God and we definitely revere him as Lord, he came down as man and he was like us without all the issues. <laughs> but he did have the issues, though, too. You talk about the external issues that he grew up in. He took, grew up in a difficult time. His father had to work. You say you corrected on it may not have been like a carpenter. He probably knew how to work with wood, though. But like you said, it wasn't a lot of wood there. I mean, it's a desert, you know. <laughs> so go ahead. No, absolutely. So I think that as a tectone, he was probably very skilled in making various tools for agriculture, blades, plows, stuff like that. You know, it's interesting. There's a, a reconstruction in just in the north of Galilee of a first century village, first, second century uh, village. And I've been very few, in fact, none of the typical pilgrimages that we see today of churches going. They don't go there either, but it is a wonderful place. And I've taken many pictures there, which appear in the book, which shows you what a typical first century village like Nazareth would have looked like. And it shows you, you know, very simple homes built with stone and then mortared with mud and a roof of branches and mud. And and it, it's a wonderful, wonderful place to visit. And it sort of brings to life that Jesus was a young man. He was a child. He grew up. He was a young man. He experienced the tremendous suffering that was going on around him. And I think that's what motivated him to develop his ministry. Another aspect, too, is that he used things that were counterintuitive to the people of that time frame in order to make his message known as well. Because even though he was in this climate of poverty, he was coming to save those who were lost. So it wasn't just the elite, it was the poor, too. All of them being drawn to him. And that's what you get when you get your copy of The Fractured Kingdom, Uniting Modern Christianity Through the Historical Jesus, available wherever books are sold. Now, this next part that we're going to talk about in this book, and there's so much that we can only just scratch the surface of, but this next part I totally found probably the most brilliant part of this book, because you do lament at the divisiveness that we have in Christianity today. We do lament about that. But there's one thing that unites us all, and it's also the historical Christ, don't misunderstand, but it's something much more abstract, but much more powerful as well. If I'm saying it right, I hope I'm saying it right to our listeners. I don't want people to listen to think, oh, you're trying to say Jesus doesn't connect us. It's not that, but it's how we connect. So go ahead, tell them what that uniting factor is. Thank you so much for that. And, you know, if there's one thing that we all agree on, that we all practice during our Sunday worship, it is the Lord's Prayer. It is the Our Father. So in the book, I seize on that prayer to say, now, can we not find common ground in that prayer? Regardless of what political affiliation you cleave to, regardless of your upbringing, regardless of your denomination, can we not start with that? Start with the Our Father. So I start, what I do in the second part of the book is I break it down. I start with the original Aramaic. Jesus spoke, of course, Aramaic, which was a language that emerged in ninth century in BC in Assyria. It became the uh, lingua franca, if you will, the sort of English international language of the Middle East by the fifth century. And so when during the Babylonian captivity, when so many Jews were forced to go to Babylonia. They learned Aramaic. When they came back, they brought the language with them, and that's how Jesus spoke Aramaic rather than Hebrew. I could tell you a lot more about that. I won't do that right now. But so I start from the original Aramaic, and then I break down the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, uh, verse by verse. Every verse has its own chapter. Uh, for example, uh, Our Father hallowed be your name. 
Now, we say that every Sunday, right? But do we really recognize what it means and how incredibly important it is to start with that? Why, why does Jesus talk about the name of God? Why is that so important? Well, in Judaism of its time, as you probably are aware, and even among Orthodox Jews today, you cannot depict living people. You cannot depict animals. You cannot depict anything that has life because that's God's, God's prerogative. So there were no depictions of God in ancient Judaism, as, of course, we have today. There weren't any depictions of Jesus in ancient Palestine. That was a development that took place when Christianity went into Europe. And, of course, the Greco-Roman Empire had a long tradition of depicting the gods that they worshipped. So the first depictions of Jesus that we have, we see in catacombs, and in other places, very early on, third century, very early on, these are depictions of Jesus as a man in frescoes made by Roman artists. But you not find that in the Jewish tradition. And so what Jews instead did is they turned their mind to the divine, not through an image, through an icon, but through the name, through the name of God. In the Hebrew Bible, there are two. There's El and Elohim, which is, of course, the plural of El. That's one way to refer to God. The other one is Yahweh. I'm sure you're familiar with that word, Yahweh, by which people turn their mind to God. In the centuries before Jesus, there was another name that became very popular, Adonai, which means the Lord which we see that name in the Gospels appearing very often. Oh, Lord, tell us, so, so, and so on. Then the word used is Adonai. And then in the first century itself, the time of Jesus, there was another name called Hashem, the name Hashem. Many Jews today still refer to God by that indication, a term as mysterious as God itself, because for Jews, God is so incredibly omnipotent, so incredibly powerful that even the word God should not be spelled out. When you read traditional Jewish literature to this day, they don't spell out the word God. They have G asterisk D because it is just inconceivable that a Jew could even be thinking or imagining God other than through the name and so I think that that's why Jesus starts with that, hallowed be thy name, which of course is a gesture towards his Jewish followers, but it's also an important thing for us to always make sure that we refer to Hashem in a reverential way. But here Jesus uh, enters a unique twist. Because before he says, hallowed be your name, he doesn't say Hashem, he doesn't say Adonai, he doesn't say Elohim or Yahweh. He says, Abba, Abba. You know, it's funny because when you see on Netflix shows produced in Israel and you see kids with their father, even to this day on these modern TV shows, they refer to their father as Abba, Daddy. So Jesus says to his followers, you should embrace God like your father. Call him dad. Rest your weary head on his shoulder. You can call him dad. And that was a break with this traditional worship of the name. So remote. God is so remote. We can barely express his name. No, Jesus says, you should embrace God like your father because he loves you. He wants the best for you. Trust in him. And if you trust in God, you will be sure that he will trust you and guide you in your path. And th that's why that, I find that so incredible that the first word in the Aramaic version of the Our Father is Abba, Daddy. Dad, hallowed be your name. So anyway, this is one little example of how I try to break down each of those verses 
in the Our Father as a way of uniting us, as bringing us together. Let's Before we get all angry about gay rights and God knows what else, let's just first agree as Christians on these verses. And if we do, chances are we might find agreement on many other things as well. I think it's remarkable that you use our Father as that uniting element of our Lord and Savior that's so important is that we are drawn to him. We say, Daddy. And I can remember running to my father going, Daddy, Daddy. And it's a joy of happiness. It's, you know, you can run and jump on him. Or if you're feeling sad, you can cry and bring all your problems. That's what dads do. And so having that image of daddy, that's more so father. How are you, father? No, it's daddy. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's the sweet, informal title of our father that I think is very important to discussion. And for me, it brings to mind the creator of the universe can be so approachable. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I can remember the moment I had this revelation, not that I didn't know it, but when you go through something and you realize that I can call out to the Lord where I am right now in this universe, that he knows my name. And that's the remarkable part of it is that he knows my name. And so I love that you use that to bring the divisiveness together. Now, I can just hear our listeners saying, but wait a minute, Professor. Wait a minute, PJ. We just can't let certain things run rampant. We just can't let these things not be talked about. We can't just let all this other stuff go unspoken of and not react to it. What would you say to that listener out there? I know they're going to say that to themselves, if not to you. So let's go ahead and respond to that. Sure. I think the most important thing of the Our Father and of all of Jesus's ministry is the fact that he urges us towards compassion rather than being judgmental. I think today as Christians, we're far too judgmental. We judge people because of who they love, what their orientation is what they want to do with their life. But that is not at all what Jesus tells us to do. Jesus tells us to embrace our fellow man with love. And maybe the people, other people don't think the way they do. Maybe they have other ideas about how the country should be run. Maybe they have other ideas about what we should do with migrants or how we should organize ourselves as a society. But the first and foremost thing that Jesus says is have tolerance, have compassion. Don't judge. Don't throw. Who shall be the first to throw the stone, right? No one is without sin. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive our trespasses. I mean, that is so incredibly important. We are, we are all just sinners. And Jesus recognizes that and says, that's all right. You can trespass provided you acknowledge your trespass. One of the issues I would have with some politicians is that they trespass, but they don't atone for it. They don't say, I'm sorry. They don't say, I'm sorry. They continue to trespass. And, And then they call themselves Christians, and I reject that. I said, if you are a Christian, you must be able to acknowledge your trespasses and forgive those who trespass against you. That is heart baked in the DNA of Jesus's kingdom of God. And if you don't cleave to that, if you don't approach our society, our cities, our states in which we live, with that idea of tolerance and compassion for one another, even if you you look different or you behave different than we do, that is not a reason to ostracize them. There is, we must Find it in our hearts to reach out to those people and to cleave to them and to make them part of our society, even though they are different than maybe we are. And I find that lacking in our discourse today. It's like everybody seems to have the copyright on Christianity. Everybody seems to have the copyright of what Jesus intends us to do. There is no such thing. Jesus says it very clearly. Genesis says it fairly clearly. God created all of us. He didn't just create Episcopalians or Catholics or Evangelicals. He created all of us. 
And what he is trying to do through his son is to show the way in which we can come together and say, let's broker a compromise. Let's see if we can find a solution to the ills that face us in our modern society in a way that makes you happy, makes me happy, that makes you whole and makes I whole. Is that difficult? Of course it's difficult. It's damn difficult. It's much easier to close your door and to say, okay, we, we are the elect. We are the ones that are going to find the kingdom of heaven. And every, everybody out there outside of the door, forget it. You're not going to make it. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. And I, I so reject that idea. Uh, and we see it in our Congress today where the desire to compromise is completely lost because everybody's just looking for political capital. It's looking for, how can I pander to my base? The whole idea of what our founding fathers hoped to achieve, which is where people from different backgrounds and different beliefs could come together in the house of our nation and say, now let's sit together and let's see if we can be true to our people who elected us and find a way together to find a compromise and work things out. Let's just work things out. That, that is completely lost. Everybody's just there for himself, for his own. And so I find it so hard to believe that some of these people actually call themselves Christian because they completely forget what it is that Jesus wants us to do. And the Gospels say it so clearly. Jesus wants to return us to the essential Gospels, the essential columns, the pedestals, of the Hebrew Bible, which is compassion, justice, faith in God. That's it. Compassion, justice, faith in God. It is written black and white all over the Gospels as well as the Hebrew Bible. And if you don't get it, those things, then you don't get the Bible. Then you don't have the right to quote the Bible because it starts with those things. I can't think of a better way to end our episode today, Professor. I really enjoyed talking and really digging to, well, on the surface anyway, the fractured kingdom uniting modern Christianity through the historical Jesus. That's available wherever books are sold. I have to say, as you were talking about the hypocritical aspects that some of our Christian leaders have, I thought about something my mom says all the time. She says, tell the truth, shame the devil. She says that (laughs) all the time. And I liked how you said we can be honest with ourselves because it's so easy to point the finger at anyone else except for ourselves. And when we find ourselves in a position where we need grace and forgiveness, we want it. Definitely. We want it. And my pastor preached recently, Professor, about the woman caught in adultery. And one aspect of the story that he brought out was that when they brought her to him, he knelt and started writing in the dirt. And my pastor said, the first thing that Jesus did when they say she got caught in adultery and the last time I checked, (laughs) you need two to tangle. When you get caught in adultery, it's not really by yourself or you just you know, and so what happened when they brought her to Jesus, he didn't say nothing at first. He bent down and he started writing in the ground. And our pastor said the first thing he did was take the attention off of her and put it onto himself. That was the first thing that he did. And maybe I never thought about it that way before because he was putting all the reclamation that was on her onto himself, just paralleling what he would do on the cross. And at the end of it, one thing our pastor said, just to your point here, Professor, one thing our pastor said, too, was that she was exposed because she was caught in adultery. She wasn't by herself, but she was exposed. All her sin, whatever that was, he said, put yourself there. It doesn't have to be adultery. It could be cheat. It could be liar. It could be what you were there. It's all exposed. You can't hide it anymore. Everyone knows. Okay. And he said, what did Jesus say? Where are your accusers? He said, then go and sin no more. And that simplicity of that message, I know I'm truncating it for, for time here, but that simplicity of the marriage of that message really struck me this past Sunday that my pastor preached about it. And then having you kind of pin all that with what you said today about the fractured kingdom, we all have to remember that all of us are in her place. If you think about it, all of us, it doesn't matter what the sin is. It could be the one of the biggies or it could be one of the smallies. <laughs> 
if there's such a thing, right? <laughs> but yeah, but Professor, I really enjoyed our conversation today, and I know our listeners did too. And if you want to connect with Professor, you can just look him up online, Professor Jean-Pierre Isbutz. It's available. He's been around for some time and is one of the most foremost experts in biblical archaeology and historical. So guess what? There's so many other books he has out here. And one thing that says in his bio here he comes from a non-denominational point of view. And so what happens when he says, ah, go to this church here, 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 it's because, you know, you can't be a historian and just not see like this is just the only way. You kind of pick up on different things as you do it. So I thought that was pretty funny when you said that. But because of that aspect of yourself, you draw people from different faith walks to your books. And I think that's important too, because like you said earlier in the broadcast, you just want to try to, unify people with what unifies us and not necessarily what separates us. So if you want to be part of the solution, you can do that in a small way by picking up your copy of The Fractured Kingdom, Uniting Modern Christianity Through the Historical Jesus, available now. Thank you so much for joining me for this edition of the Parker J. Cole Show. Professor, thank you again for being with us. And we're going to have him back because he's going to be talking to us about archaeology and the Bible. And I know some of our listeners are going to enjoy that. And then once he finishes his map about the Holy Land, we'll have him back too. So I tell Professor, dear listener, that he's just stuck with me. So he's not going to go anywhere. If he tries to go anywhere, I'll find you. <laughs> so that's what's going to happen. But I really enjoyed having you, Professor, to our listeners. Thanks for listening today to the Parker J. Cole Show. May the Lord bless you, and he bless you real good. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.